Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis chapter 23. <clears throat> One of the greatest things about expository preaching, that is preaching through the text of the Bible, book by book, one of the greatest things is that you eventually deal with everything the Bible deals with. <clears throat> One of the most difficult things about expository preaching, preaching through the Bible book by book, is that you eventually have to deal with everything the Bible addresses. This morning, like it or not, we have before us the subject of the death of a loved one. Maybe that's a great thing. Maybe that's a difficult thing. You probably didn't get up this morning saying, well, I hope we talk about having our loved one die today at church. But that's where we are in the Genesis account. And so either way, that's what we have before us in Genesis 23. Let me read this chapter in its entirety. It's only 20 verses. <clears throat> Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. And he said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the, city, to the gate of his city, No, my lord, he said, listen to me, I give you the field. And I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. They're hearing, listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered, Abraham, listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre both the field and the cave in it and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property 
in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And so the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. <clears throat> this is not the kind of chapter that you read with delight at the early part of the week and say, oh boy, this is going to be a fun chapter. What could we preach about this? What do we do with this? Let me suggest two things that I think we learn from this passage that I'd like to unpack for you a little. Perhaps there's more, but uh, two things that I think that I've learned from this passage. The first is this, that the people of God honor their dead. The people of God honor their dead. The, the, the portion in Genesis here, which contains the story of Abraham, stretches from chapter 12, where God calls him, through chapter 25. We're almost to the end of it. Fourteen chapters in all. There, we're told many things about Abraham, but there are many, many more things that we wish we knew that God never saw fit to tell us about all these years of Abraham's life. And yet, interestingly, of those 14 chapters, one whole chapter is given to Abraham's response to the death of his wife. That's not something we wanted to know about. We wanted to ask all kinds of questions, but God must think it's important for us to know what Abraham did when his wife died. Well, Abraham honored his deceased wife. That's what he did. There may be no woman in Scripture who we ought to hold in higher esteem than Sarah. There is no other woman in Scripture whose age and death is described for us other than Sarah. And certainly there ought to be something special about her, for she is the mother of all the faithful. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, she is held before God's people as an example to be followed. For example, in Isaiah 51, verse 1 and 2, we read, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut, and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. You want to know about pursuing righteousness? Consider not just Abraham, but Sarah, from whom you came. And then in the New Testament, in 1 Peter 3, we read, uh, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight, for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Be like Sarah. Great 
woman of God. Oh, Sarah's not perfect. We saw how she unwisely encouraged Abraham to take Hagar and have a, have a son by Hagar. We saw her become jealous and harsh toward Hagar. We saw her laugh in unbelief at God's promise to give her a son in her old age. She was not perfect. But Sarah was a great woman of faith. For over 60 years she kept faith with Abraham through all his travels. For all those years she kept faith with God. And it's not just Abraham's faith that is recognized in the great uh, Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame. No, Sarah too receives honorable mention. No wonder Abraham, the man of God, honored his wife in her death. That's what God's people do. Now we see that honor, which is characteristic of all the people of God, expressed in two ways here. First, Abraham mourns. He grieves her dying. We have a strange idea floating around Christian circles these days that somehow, because of the great promises of the gospel, it would be improper for a Christian to grieve. Somehow tears of sorrow have come to suggest a lack of faith to some people. Somehow it is expected that if a Christian has confidence in the great providence of God, that in the face of the death of a loved one he will only rejoice and be glad. Where did that kind of idea come from? It's not what the Bible teaches. According to verse 2, Abraham mourned for Sarah and wept over her. Dr. Boyce points out that Abraham didn't weep when he heard his nephew Lot was captured and carried, carried off by the alliance of kings. He didn't weep when God told him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And yet here it says, he weeps. Not only did Abraham grieve with tears, so have the people of God honored their dead with tears throughout the Bible. Indeed, Jesus himself stood at the grave of his friend Lazarus, who he knew he was about to raise from the dead, and he wept. Folks, the death of a loved one is something to shed tears about. Sin has caused this sorrow. It's a reminder of the curse. We were not created to die. We were created to live. Death is an affront to all that God has created us to be. Death is the enemy, the last enemy, who Christ, which Christ will subdue. It is not a normal response for a Christian to rejoice over death. We rejoice in spite of death's bitterness. What the Bible actually says on the subject in 1 Thessalonians is that we do not grieve as those who have no hope. They are in despair, you see. We're not in despair. We grieve. We weep. Our hearts are filled with sorrow. For an unnatural separation has come between those who belong together. To fail to grieve would be to act as if it doesn't matter, as if sin has no terrible consequences, as if, de as if death is normal in God's creation. But it's not. It does matter. For the people of God, it matters. 
And so we honor our dead with our tears. We weep, we mourn, we grieve, just like Abraham did. Then Abraham honored Sarah in another way. He honored Sarah by giving her a decent burial. Now, some of you may disagree with what I'm about to say, but I think we need to think about this. About 50% of the people who died in Washington State last year were not buried. They were cremated. Is that the proper thing for a Christian to do? Clearly, it's not going to affect God's ability to raise the dead. Clearly, the bodies of martyrs have been burned at the stake and torn and eaten by lions, for that matter. So to, be, to not be buried does not indicate anything about a person's relationship to God. Well, that's not the issue. The issue is just what is most appropriate for a Christian, believing what we believe, knowing what we know. Well, the unmistakable pattern of the scripture is that the people of God honor their dead by burying them. We have many, many descriptions of the burial of God's people. Sarah, here in chapter 23, Abraham, a little ways down the road, Rachel, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Eleazar, Samuel, Daniel, John the Baptist, Stephen, the Lord himself, all of those burials are described for us. Indeed, to not receive a proper burial is a great dishonor. In contrast to that, when the Bible speaks of burning with fire, it almost always has a negative connotation. It speaks of judgment. For example, in Genesis 38, Judah ordered his pregnant daughter-in-law to be burned to death in judgment for her prostitution. In Leviticus 20, if a man marries both a woman and her mother, all three are to be burned in judgment. In Leviticus 21, if the daughter of a priest becomes a prostitute, she must be burned with fire. In Joshua 7, when Achan sinned, he was stoned to death along with all that he owned, all of his family, and then they were burned in judgment. In Amos 2, God proclaimed a death curse on Moab because he had burned as if to lime the bones of the king of Edom. And of course in Revelation 20, the final judgment of the wicked is to be thrown into the lake of fire. The only possible exception would be when the bodies of King Saul and his sons had been impaled and left to rot by the Philistines. The people of Jabesh Gilead retrieved those bodies and burned the decomposed flesh and hauled the bones back home for a proper burial. Every other time the Bible speaks of burning by fire, it has negative connotation. It's associated with judgment. It would not be the way that the people of God would normally honor their dead. Throughout history, God's people have often lived in the midst of cultures who burned their dead. But the uniform practice of the people of God, the uniform practice throughout the scripture is burial. For burial acknowledges that the body is part of the person created in God's image. Those religions that cremate as a, as a statement of their faith, such as Hinduism, 
do so because they see the body as a prison for the soul, which is what really matters. And they're trying to free the soul, free the spirit of man, to move on to a higher calling, to another reincarnation or something. The body is evil. But that's not what we believe. We believe in resurrection. Our hope is not in death. Our hope is not in the immortality of the soul that we'll live on in some other form in a better life. No, our hope is in the resurrection, in the resurrection of these bodies. This same body that we lay in the ground will rise. And our redemption is not complete until it does. And so Christians throughout the history of the church have honored their dead. Throughout the Bible, we don't generally see the people of God embalming their dead like the Egyptians did. We don't see them burning their dead like the Greeks did and the Romans did and the Babylonians did. We see them washing their bodies, preparing them for burial, and laying them to rest, waiting for their resurrection. I don't wish to condemn anyone. Some of you here, I'm sure, I don't know what, who's done what, but I'm sure some of you have made hard decisions and have chosen to cremate a godly one. I'm not trying to second guess decisions made in godly sincerity. Please don't mistake my motives here. I would never heap upon someone's grief some additional sense of guilt. That's not what this is about. But all of us will someday stand where you stood in that same difficult, lonely moment where you have to decide what to do. And my goal is to help to Paris for that day and to address the question, what is most consistent with our faith? What is best? What reflects both the precepts and the example that the scripture gives us? And the answer, I believe, is that burial is most consistent the most consistent way for the people of God to honor their dead. Oh, well, all that hasn't begun to address all that this chapter has to tell us, so let me move on to the second point. The second truth is this. In the face of death, God's promises stand. In the face of death, God's promises stand. One of the many jobs I've had along the way uh, growing up and being a young adult was to load freight on airplanes for Delta Airlines for a while. One of the things that surprised me as I started working that job was that we shipped bodies. I never had thought about Almost every single day, a casket would be delivered to be shipped across the country somewhere. Now, it costs about as much to ship a dead body in a coffin as it does to ship a live body in a seat. So why would so many people ship the bodies of their loved ones all the way across the country to be buried? Well, that's really not a hard question, is it? I worked at the Los Angeles airport. Trust me, no one from Tennessee 
or from the rolling hills of Pennsylvania wants to be buried in Los Angeles. No. People take their deceased loved ones home. Right? That's what makes this chapter so powerful. Think about Abraham's situation. Think about how he might have reacted to Sarah's death. Think about what Abraham might have said. He might have said, you know, all these years we believed in God. All these years we waited for him to do what he said. All these years he promised us this land. For 60 years now, we waited for him to keep his promise, though we've been getting older and older, and time has been getting shorter and shorter. And now it's too late. Sarah's gone. For 60 years she waited for nothing. God, you seem to have forgotten what you said. Or you never really cared. No. Abraham might have said, I am through waiting. I'm not going to die in this God-forsaken place. I'm going home. I'm going to pack up my dear Sarah, and we are going to find my brother Nahor back in Ur of the Chaldeans where they know how to live in a more civilized way anyway. We are going home. Apparently this was a cruel joke chasing after foolish dreams which have all come to nothing. Sound familiar? How often when things look really discouraging are we tempted to indulge the root of bitterness? How easy to wallow in self-pity especially in the face of something so devastating and impossible to understand as the death of our beloved spouse when before God got around to doing what he promised. We would probably understand if Abraham said those things. Ah, oh, but that's not what he said. And that's not what he did. Far from abandoning his hope in God's covenant, Abraham now sets out to enshrine the certainty of all those promises God made in the burial of his dear Sarah. Abraham wants the world to know. He wants his descendants to remember forever, for generation after generation, that in the very face of death, when I lay Sarah in the ground, I still proclaim God's promises stand firm. And so Abraham sets out to purchase a burial plot in the land of Canaan, which God had promised him so long ago. Oh yes, he mourned for Sarah, but not for long. There was important business to do. The body would begin to de decay in a day or two, and he had to find a burial plot, for he owned not one inch 
of land. And so we have this wonderful scene that takes up most of this chapter. A scene where we have the opportunity to look through the window of time at a whole different culture and to see Abraham negotiating with the Hittites for a burial plot. It's a more courteous culture than ours, isn't it? They stood and they bowed, spoke flatteringly to one another. Oh, but you know that behind the courtesy there have got to be some unspoken meanings. When they flatter him and say, Oh, Abraham, you are a great prince among us. You can use any of our tombs. You don't need to buy one. There's more to that than meets the eye. This is a way of pressing him to remain a landless immigrant, a stranger and an alien. And when Ephraim the Hittite offers to give him the land, take my land, you can have it. You know Abraham better had not take him up on that offer. Think of Doreen Woodbridge telling us of being invited repeatedly into the home of her Japanese hostess, only to have her panic when she accepted. No, Abraham knows that the price must be negotiated with Ephraim. And even when Ephraim says, well, the land is worth 400 shekels, but what is that between you and me? Abraham knows that's only the negotiating starting point. But then Abraham does a strange thing. He doesn't negotiate any further. When he gives his first probably excessively, exorbitantly high figure, 400 shekels. Abraham pulls out his money and begins to count out 400 shekels. Don't you know that for years Ephraim was bragging to his friends about how he beat that Abraham out of 400 shekels for that piece of ground? And so, in front of the whole assembly, in an act which they probably would never forget, Abraham paid the full price and acquired before the whole assembly full and free title to this one little piece of land with a cave at the end, the cave of Machpelah. Now we can see how important this is by a little hint that the text gives us. One important word that I would have missed, except I read some of the experts who helped me to understand. The word is a Hebrew word, akusa. It's translated site, burial site, in verse 9 and again in verse 20. But folks, I learned from reading some of the Hebrew scholars that this is exactly the same word that God had used when he promised to give Abraham the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession back in chapter 17. He promised him an everlasting akusa. 
In fact, it's the same word that Psalm 2 uses when God promises his son, Ask of me and I will give the nations, make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession, your akusa. Do you see what's happening here? This is yet another act of faith on the part of Abraham. He will not return to the Ur of Chaldees where he came from. That would indicate that he had abandoned God's promises. It would indicate that he considered that home, but that was not home anymore. Nor would he settle for a borrowed grave, even if it's free. For that would indicate that somehow he was forever to be a stranger and an alien here. No, Sarah is to be laid to rest, finally, in a possession, an akusa of the land of Canaan that God had promised him as his everlasting possession. Isn't it ironic? In life, Sarah lived by faith as a stranger and an alien. But in death, she was laid to rest, possessing a piece of the possession. Oh, it wasn't much. One tree-lined field with a cave at the end. But it was to be a perpetual testimony established by Abraham that even in the death of faith, in the face of death, we have no home but this. Even in the face of death, we do not abandon God's covenant. Even as I lay my dear beloved Sarah to death, God keeps his promises. And here we stand. And that cave bore just such a testimony for generations to come. For not only was Sarah buried there, but a little while later Abraham was buried there. And before long Isaac, his son, was buried there. And then Rebekah was buried there. And then Leah was buried there. And finally Jacob was buried there too. In fact, this tribute to the promises of God was so powerful that when Joseph was about to die in Egypt three generations down the road, he made them promise, take me back there. In Genesis 50 we read, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. That's from Egypt. Now when Moses is writing this account, 400 years later, God has delivered his people out of Egypt. And sure enough, when they did, they picked up Joseph's coffin and carried it with them. And they wandered in the wilderness and carried that thing around for 40 years. And now they're about to enter the promised land where they will bury it. Back home. Back home. For you see, Father Abraham had made it crystal clear what home is going to be for his family. Home will be where the promises of God are. Even in the death, in the face of death, 
God's promises stand. Oh, but folks, Hebrews 11 tells us Abraham was looking for more than even that little land of Canaan. His faith wasn't just that God would give him a piece of real estate for his family for generations to come. No, Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham was looking for an eternal home, that Abraham looked forward to nothing less than the resurrection from the dead when he himself would also inherit the earth. And that's the promise which God has now set in motion through the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty of sin so that the curse can be removed. God raised him from the dead as a first fruits of what he's about to do in the whole earth. And the fact that Jesus was raised guarantees that everyone who is in Jesus will be raised on the last day. You see, Jesus' resurrection is the, is the beginning of our possession of God's promises in much the same way that this little piece of ground where, where Sarah was buried was a beginning of the possession of the land of promise. By his death and resurrection, Christ Jesus has guaranteed that wickedness will eventually be cleansed from this earth, that those who trust in him will be raised to dead, and a whole new redeemed race will populate the earth and the heavens forever, living in perfect fellowship with God. It's not a question of what's going to happen. It's only a question of when. But let's not kid ourselves. Sometimes it looks rather bleak, doesn't it? Life goes on. The world spins faster. And if anything, the promises of God seem more distant than ever. We may diligently believe and hope for all of our years, and then we die just like generations before us. So what do we do? When we lay our dear spouse to rest, perhaps after terrible unrelieved suffering, when it becomes clear that our own death is upon us in the matter of days or weeks, when everyone around us has gotten over those crazy ideas that we used to believe from the Bible, when it seems that we're all alone with nothing but a bunch of unfulfilled words from God, now what do we do? Well, this isn't a hypothetical situation. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ stand right there today on the brink of seeming hopelessness with nothing but unfulfilled words of promise, of resurrection, a new life, and all these things. And we may stand there tomorrow. And what do we do? We imitate the faith of Abraham. In the very face of death, God's promises still stand firm. He bought a field. He put down his roots. Here I stand. I don't care how hopeless it looks, God didn't change. I don't care how impossible it looks, God's promises are still true. I don't care who else might have abandoned the promises, here we stand. God hasn't abandoned his promise. A few days before his death, the great Dr. F.B. Meyer wrote to a very dear friend these words. I have just heard to my surprise that I have but a few days to live. It may be that before this reaches you, I shall have entered the palace. 
don't trouble yourself to write. I'll see you in the morning. Do you have that hope? Do you know and rest upon the promises of God in the gospel? Well, you see, the truth is every one of us is going to look death in the face. Not just the death of our most dear spouse or friend or family member, but our own death. And in that day, the only hope we have, the only hope we have today, in fact, is our hope in the one that Abraham saw beyond the land, beyond the immediate things, the one he saw, the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning I call you to faith in Jesus. He is the only one who has paid for our sins. He is the only one who forgives. He is the only one who gives hope. He is the only certain redeemer. He alone can raise us from the dead. He alone is our true possession, our eternal home. So if we stand stripped to nothing, having lost all of our senses without a friend, looking death in the face, right there, he's enough. God's promises stand firm. Amen. Oh Lord, it's one thing to talk about terrible grief and about being terribly alone in the face of unrelenting death. Oh, but Lord, who's prepared to stand there? So Lord, teach us in these good days that you've given us, may our roots go deep into your promises, into the gospel. May our confidence in Christ grow strong. So that when we stand and look into the darkness and have nothing but your promises, that we won't flinch. We will understand and rest secure in the fact that your promises are enough. Thank you that they are. Cause us to know that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.